This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are talking about the 1995 album by Blind Guardian, Imaginations from the Other Side. This is an album that I chose because we haven't done that much power metal on the show, and I kind of felt like that was a bit of an oversight, really. I mean, there are other genres that we haven't done, I know, but, you know, power metal is something that Brian and I both kind of... I mean, it, it's you could say in a way it's where we meet, thinking about it, isn't it? Because, you know, you're much more into the sort of, you know, as we've discussed, the 80s, the glam side of things. I'm much more into the kind of, uh, well, and the speed metal side of things. And I'm much more into the kind of, uh, I don't know, grindy side of stuff. Um, but power metal is kind of where those two things meet, I think. You know, it's where you and I can compromise. I agree, especially in, and obviously we're going to talk a lot about that today, especially around a band and an album like this. Whereas, but interestingly, like, I don't know that I have a great relationship with power metal, like overall. What? Neither do I. I. No, that's, that's the weird thing. Yeah. But, but there are so many elements of power metal that when the, when the combination is right and when the certain elements are emphasized in the, just the perfect mix for me then it absolutely hits a hundred percent and i think that's where i struggle with this genre in general is that there's a lot of times where i feel like that mix is off and i just don't get into it and it doesn't hit 100 yeah and it doesn't hit right but then there are times where it does and i'm like oh i guess i do really like power metal like when i listen to certain albums when it's done really well yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. and so you know spoiler alert i think that is the case certainly with this album as we're going to talk about today but yeah, I agree. Because when it does work like that, you can see all the little parts that overlap from the genres that we love. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is this is a potent combination when used in this way. Yeah, totally. All right, let's do some quick follow-up. Uh, we have a few patrons since our last episode. Uh, Kenneth Jefferson, Tony Stewart, and Dan Davidson. Actually, this is a good point. So Dan is not a new patron, but I'd got him down as having like cancelled his uh, his membership a while ago. It turned out that his credit card had been declined by Patreon, and they never told him. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he he didn't actually mean to like end his membership. Um, so yeah, he and I had a quick conversation about this to figure out what had happened. So I, I mention it now just to say to any other listeners out there, please everybody just log in to your Patreon account and check that your payment method is still, you know, valid, that your card, your credit card is still valid, just in case, because you actually, and not just for our show, you know, but for any any other thing that you're supporting on Patreon, you may actually find that your card's been declined and Patreon never told you, you know, and you're sort of, you haven't been supporting this person that you might want to. So everybody, yeah, go and check that. I certainly did. As soon as I found out about that, I went into my Patreon account and just checked that everything was still valid. Um, cause yeah, that was a real surprise to me. Patreon actually is pretty terrible about telling us as well when people, uh, you know, I don't get any kind of alerts or anything when people <laughs> end their membership yeah. or, you know, we only get um, uh, emails when people join, which is wonderful, but it would be handy for them to tell us, <laughs> you know, the other stuff as well. So yeah, unless I'm missing something obvious, they're a bit rubbish about that. But anyway, so I thought it was because we didn't have enough eighties in, the podcast and so i've tried to rectify that over the course of this that's volume. what all of and this so volume has been about yeah so uh, in, in people are coming back so it seems like it works to me so i'm going to take that lesson into the next volume as well and, and just for the future 
overall. Huge success. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, thank you guys. Welcome everyone. And as always, thank you to our existing patrons as well, who uh, will come up again at the end of this episode because the Encore poll for this volume is now closed and we are going to make the selection from those nominations at the end of this episode. So we'll talk about that later. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention was we got an email from a band called Wallow. Very odd, but spelled very oddly. It's W-O-L-L-O-W. So it's like a, you know, an um, palindrome. Uh, They have released their first EP called Tales of Wallow, Volume 1. And they sent us an email and it clearly was not a very, you know, it wasn't a corporate email. It was clearly sent by the band themselves asking us if we would check it out and mention them. Uh, And they gave us two sort of um things to encourage us to do that and they were they claimed that the album was recorded with old-fashioned microphones and sweat which is always good uh and they are from the midlands in england and i am from i'm a I was born in Birmingham. I'm from the Midlands myself. So, uh, you know, that was kind of... I was, they knew how to get you right exactly, out of the gate. Exactly, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll go and check this out. And actually, yeah, it's pretty good. It's kind of old school thrash stoner doom. There's a bit of bit of Hetfield, bit of Chuck Billy in the vocals at times. It's not bad. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage everybody, go and have a listen to it. You can see them on Bandcamp. They're on wallow-banduk.bandcamp.com. But if you just search for the band name, because it's an odd name, I'm sure you'll find them. And yeah, as I say, it's not bad. I wound up buying the CD version of the EP. Why not? Nice. So, yeah, you know, it's uh, we get a lot of emails from marketing departments and PR people and what have you, and I've got to be honest, most of the time I just delete them without even reading them. But that one, because it was so obviously sent by the band themselves, I was like, yeah, okay, let's give this a listen. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad I did. Yeah, and I know that we have listeners of this podcast, too, that will absolutely click with, so. Yeah, totally. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say was a couple of personal things. So uh, we've mentioned, you know, this volume especially, we have been a bit slow <laughs> with some of the episodes, and there's been quite a gap before we've managed to record this one as well, which, again, we apologise. A lot of that is just because of sort of work and life stuff that Brian and I have both got going on. Me more than Brian, to be honest. Um, uh but I wanted to mention, sort of, just to step aside from the podcast itself for a moment, a couple of things that have come to fruition because of that. I just had a new book launch uh, last month, as we recalled, of a new murder mystery series called The Dog Sitter Detective uh, that's just launched. It's absolutely the most unmetal thing. <laughs> You can imagine it is a cosy crime mystery about a 60 year old woman who uh, looks after dogs and stumbles across murders and solves them sort of Miss Marple style. Absolutely, you know, totally not metal at all. Um, But nevertheless, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, you never know. People out there might listen to it, might enjoy listening to it. A bit more metal associated. I also can finally announce what I was working on for like 18 months up until recently, because uh, that was just announced, and that is the interactive web series Silent Hill Ascension that was literally just announced uh, last month, a few weeks ago. Um, that is what I was working on with Gemvid and Bad Robot for, yeah, like I say, 18 months, and that was one of the things that actually slowed us down during this volume a lot, because I was working very, very long, odd hours uh, on that game. I was a narrative consultant, but it's finally been announced now. It should be out at the end of this year. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm Silent Hill, I'm a huge fan. Uh, you and I both obviously big fans of horror games in general. Absolutely. Um, and with that job, it this is the weirdest thing. I can't even believe this is true, but it really is. It makes me the only person in the world to have worked on all three of Dead Space, Resident Evil, and Silent Hill, which is just I love that mind blowing <laughs> so much. And I love it for you, but I also love it for me as a horror fan and a fan of those franchises. And yeah, I to be able to finally talk about that. And I wonder how much are you allowed to talk about that now? Or is there a lot of stuff that you can't talk about with, I know that obviously the game's been announced and, and it's going to be coming out, but, um, oh, as- yeah, I can't talk about the specifics of it. No, I can just say, as I say, I worked on it. I was a narrative consultant. If you've seen the trailer online, I co-wrote that with the, uh, head writer of the game. Um, but it, well, and it's not even really a game. Like I say, it's an interactive web series. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't go into detail, unfortunately, yet. I don't, I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to until it's actually released, to be honest. Well, if you do, you know, the interview in, interviewer in me and just the nerd <laughs> in me wants to know all about that process. So yeah, and congratulations, man. And, and you know, you, you talked about the Dog Sitter Detective not being metal. But first of all, Miss Marple rules. And second of all, I think you're going to find that there are a lot of people in this community, including myself, who are absolutely up for a good detective story, even a cozy one. And, you know, growing up reading Miss Marple stories, I I cannot wait to dive into it. And yes, my June was very busy as well for a lot of different reasons. And so um, July, as it is now, which I still am blown away that today is the 1st of July as we record this. It it doesn't make sense to me, but it is absolutely crazy. Like June just disappeared. Well, and 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 I was going to say congratulations to you as well, because you just started a new job. Yeah, which is no no small adventure. You know, it's funny. I was telling people, um, a couple of my friends that I was talking to this week, that I spent 17 years of my career in one place. And it wasn't really until that 17 years was up that I embarked on really what has become my second career, mm. which and, and the interesting thing about it is that, you know, I started podcasting in 2006. I started trying to become a writer and and put writing out into the world within a couple of years after that and uh you know did some work for when when comic book resources was a was a comic book news site way back Imagine in the day <laughs> um yeah that you know was kind of got to head up their video game coverage at the time which you and i have yep, there's some articles yep. from back in the day we could dig up from uh from those days and um all of those things were sort of side hobbies to my primary job. And then about seven or eight years ago is when those two worlds kind of collided. And I took my sort of work that I had been doing in, in education and things like that and got to meld that with all of my sort of creator hobbies to get into marketing. And that started a whole second career for me. In a, so, you know, it all go, kind of goes back to podcasting in a way, which is always interesting and and i'm forever grateful for podcasts sort of being a door opener for everything that i've done for the past like 15 years mm-hmm. and so yeah and that has you know put me on this whole new journey and so over the past month i moved to a new company and just started over the past couple of weeks my new job and yeah it's always 
it's always super exciting and a little terrifying to start a new job to to leave oh, totally, any job yeah. and start a new job because you know it's not those are not decisions you take lightly especially when you have you know teenagers and um a lot of financial responsibilities and so yeah but super excited and that has contributed to this past month being quite a whirlwind of a month and um yeah so so thanks to everybody who has stuck by us and these sort of um lulls in time between episodes are not new we've had a few over the years where we we haven't necessarily hit the monthly mark every single time and the community has always been so amazing about that so supportive about that the facebook you know group continues to have daily and weekly discussions in between episodes and things like that and people stick around on the patreon and so just super grateful that we're able to continue to do this at a pace that works with our lives but also that people will still support and it's pretty awesome and we never ever ever take that for granted that's absolutely true it is totally awesome yeah also actually i just remembered i mean i suppose this is just because it's still me i say the book's unmetal but it does start with the main character like you know burying her father (laughs) yeah and ends with her scattering like her parents ashes in a lake so i mean you know (laughs) Right. It's, it's not. It's still me. Like you wrote it. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> people are going to see uh, people are going to see you in there for sure. There's still a bit of doom in there, you know. Which I think is a whole other thing I'd love to discuss someday, but like it doesn't matter what genre you're writing, it doesn't matter what sort of medium you're in, like you're there's always a piece of you in and the things that oh, you totally, love and yeah. care about in everything that you create. So. Yeah, totally. I I think it's the same with musicians as well, isn't it? Yep. Which is a nice segue uh, to talk about last episode. Uh, and, well, the did we, was the last episode, so it was the Wasp was the one I'm talking about. That came, it was that, the that wasp was after the episode. backstage pass, wasn't it? Yes, so it yes, was the Wasp that is episode. Correct. Yeah. So I have some comments here from the Facebook page. I think um, Wasp was one of those bands that, especially when we started doing more 80s bands, definitely one of those ones that people are like, okay, when is the Wasp episode? Yeah. And there was a couple different choices that I could have went with for my final pick of this volume, but it just felt like Wasp. It was time to do that. And um, and I think people agreed. So, yeah, let's jump into it. So, Sorsha said, so I forgot to do the homework until the episode dropped. So, I currently have the episode paused partway through, and I'm listening to the album. First impressions, the music is hooky. The lyrics are full of single entendres, which I love. <laughs> uh, and I have developed a fuller appreciation of the parody work from Steel Panther. That's a whole other conversation <laughs> yeah. I want to get into sometime. The uh, I can understand why this would have been outrageous at the time, but as a modern... Um, you know, sexual, gender, lifestyle, deviant, I find the lyrics dot, 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 quaint. I understand that perspective is wholly a result of being immersed in a particular set of online communities, so I'm a terrible judge of the extremity of things. So far, I've also found them less overly misogynistic than I expected. Sure, it's cishet male sexual fantasy fodder, but not quite as degrading as I expected, I suppose. The music is catchy and groovy, uh, which is one of the things I look for. It's dated. So I don't know how much I'd come back to it, but that riff on the start of The Torture Never Stops is fantastic. Well, you said that right. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, Joe pulled up the clip of the Chris Holmes interview that we had talked about oh, from The Decline yeah, of yeah. Western Civilization Part 2, which is a difficult watch even today after having seen it multiple times when I was a kid. Just uh, 
just an absolutely tough watch. Um, but yes, a couple people posted that. A couple people posted uh, some of the videos that just to kind of show the cheesiness of Wasp's, uh, you know, visual style back then. Uh, David said, gotta love a bit of Wasp. They kind of faded after the first two albums, in my opinion, but I still love those two to this day. Um, let's see. Christopher said, uh, didn't get a chance to listen to this, won't get a chance to listen until tomorrow, but about that assessment, um, no. I love the debut. And The Last Command is decent, but The Headless Children is their best-selling album, and The Crimson Idol is borderline legendary at this point. We cannot forget Unholy Terror, Dying for the World, and The Neon God 2 either. Clearly, those albums aren't as big, but they're killers. The Neon God 2 has some of Wasp's best songs ever, and Dying for the World might be their best overall album front to back. Now, that from Christopher is something that really resonated with me because I would say of their later albums, Dying for the World is the one that I come back to frequently, which I want to say was from maybe 2002. Um, but, and also the Headless Children for you me. You mentioned is, Headless Children on the show, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely love that album. Um, and is that the one that's a concept album? No, that's the Crimson Idol. Oh, right. Okay. So the Crimson Idol is the one that a lot of, I think, longtime wasp fans point to as one that really stands the test of time and they you know think is among the best if not the best album that they put out that one for whatever reason just didn't resonate with me like some of the other ones for me the headless children was the high point because it was where they had sort of graduated past some of the really immature you know lyrics and and imagery and stuff like that and musically, it's a really great album. But their early stuff, I mean, the theatricality and the imagery and all that stuff, like I, as someone who grew up during that era, like I like that era of Wasp as well, which is why we ended up talking about that particular album. Yeah. But yeah, Dying for the World, if, if people kind of dropped off of them, you know, um, all of these ones, like, uh, you know, Neon God albums, Dying for the World, Crimson Idol, like at least go back and give them a listen if you haven't checked them out so far. Um, let's see. Andrew said, this was the first Wasp album I bought in 1988 and then Headless Children in 89. Yeah, I think a lot of people came to Wasp a little bit later. Um, for me, I, I think I talk about this in the episode, but I, my memory is that I came to it through Live in the Raw. And I came to them through the video that they did for the Ghoulies 2 soundtrack. <laughs> uh, because they did that Scream Until You Like It song that was on Ghoulies 2. And just being a horror fan at the time and also seeing Wasp doing a video for a horror movie to me was just like perfect. Um, so Joe said, though I'm usually with Brian on 80s U.S. hair metal bands, I mostly agreed with Anthony on this album. I knew Wasp but was never into their stuff. I liked this better than I expected, though the ballad and a few other tracks were uninteresting. Their image and antics were somewhat amusing, but I was old enough in the mid to late 80s not to find it as entertaining. And it did make me take their music less seriously than even bands like Rat, Dokken, and Motley Crue. Great discussion as always. Um, Todd said the most ridiculous by far in this podcast, which is really saying something. <laughs> what, more than the subject, Stormwitch? Come on. <laughs> when, when the subject is 1980s shock rock, was the UK release title of Dungeon Master. Rage War, oh, yeah. the challenges of Excalibrate. Sounds like a botched North American localization of an obscure <laughs> Japanese NES cartridge. That might be one of my favorite comments ever. It's true, but it is it's such a great title. And so, oh, such a bad such film. a great title. And... <laughs> dungeon master holy crap yes and awesome that that we were thinking of the same movie with different titles that's so 
That's so good. Um, <laughs> and hopefully people went and checked that out. If you did not, here's your reminder. Oh, no. So you'll either find it under Dungeon Master or you'll find it under <laughs> no, don't. Rage War, don't. The Challenges of Excalibrate. It's so bad. <laughs> oh my God. So, so good. Um, <laughs> Kenneth White said, so Brian's enthusiasm about the album, thumbs up. The album that's being talked about, thumbs down. Not as bad as expected. It's way too silly for me. This stuff is just not my thing, but I was surprised about how clear the Venom influence is here. Anyway, I was hoping for less cheese with Anthony's pick, but I guess not. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shot across the bow there. Yeah, just a bit. I wouldn't call this cheese, but we'll get into that when we talk yeah, about we this Yeah, we will album. get into yeah. that. Uh, Phil said, Anthony keeps using the phrase, this sounds so quintessentially 80s. And I'm saying, yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> then the realization sets in that I don't think Anthony means this, the phrase uh, in the positive context like I do. I hadn't listened to this album in years, decades. I forgot how much fire this album is, but it does sound more dated than I thought it would. Wasp was absolutely shocking in 84-85. The song Animal was one of those songs that had parents and the media in a panic, and 14-year-old Phil couldn't get enough of it. Had to buy the import of the single with the bloody buzzsaw codpiece uh, and hide it for my parents. He said, Wasp flamed out pretty quick for me, though, after seeing them live in 85, and I didn't buy any of their albums after The Last Command. I guess for me, after the initial shock of the lyrics and visuals, it didn't have the staying power for me. Uh, He said to Brian about the Queensryche sound, I think the whole sound of the guitars in the production is very reminiscent of The Warning, also a 1984 release. There's an echoey quality to how the guitars are recorded that feels of the time. Another classic episode where Brian's enthusiasm for the album mirrors mine, with Anthony pouring some cold water on it but giving way more praise than I would have expected. Yeah, I wonder if that's our thing, yeah. right? <laughs> it certainly seems to be the thing with the 80s albums that you've picked uh, for this uh, volume, sure. He's at the homework I'm not looking forward to, though, uh, but it's been a while for me with uh, Blind Guardian, so I'll give it several spins again to see if my opinion has changed. I'm interested to see if that mm, is yeah. actually the case for Phil. Um, Jack said, uh, one hour, 57 minutes. Anthony, it reminds me of Winger. He said, I laughed out loud in the office with my headphones on. I never thought I'd hear those words not coming from Brian. I never thought I'd say them. <laughs> they were said. They're forever etched in history. Uh, JD said, this one took me back. It was about, I was about 10 when this album became one of the most circulated cassette copies at my school. Animal was the track people liked to quote, but I Want to Be Somebody was the one that everybody could sing along to. For whatever reason, I ended up on the other side of the coin with Twisted Sister, and while Wasp music videos always appealed to my juvenile aesthetic, I never really listened to the albums much. Now that the, now the tables have turned, at least in the sense that I can't really bring myself to watch the videos, but the music is actually really solid. The tracks are catchy, and Blackie's singing is just fantastic. So while this album uh, I still can't listen to in polite company, it's been on steady rotation in my earbuds now. He said, P.S. Full Moon and Trancers name drops in the episode. What are my favorite B to F tier franchises? <laughs> he said, what do you think I'm called JD for? That's awesome. Um, yeah, Full Moon. Holy crap. There's so much to talk about with with Full Moon. That would be, if there was ever a Thrash It Out style movie podcast that we did, you can bet your bottom dollar that Full Moon pictures would be littered throughout every volume of that, for sure. Uh, Andrew said, love it. Wasp and Twisted Sister are the apex hair metal bands for me, and I think the secret to both lies in their lead singers. The quality and power of their voices, not to mention the rasp, just gives everything a much heavier feel than their contemporaries, who I generally have no time for. P.S. I'm a sucker for some 
uh, OTT cheese. Great. <laughs> uh, let's see. Stuart said, well, finally listened through this episode. There's plenty of time for that while waiting to see a doctor. He said, another good episode. I'm struck by wasp. Uh, I'm struck by wasp of almost an innocence or at least a more innocent time when this was seen as so shocking. And I can remember how Blackie Lawless was going to corrupt the youth of the world with his 12 inch saw blade codpiece. I find I actually like this better than most glam slash hair metal. Not a high bar for me. I'll admit feels more gritty. Could it be Blackie's voice? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those comments sort of hit on that. Uh, we definitely have talked about that in that episode and also with the Twisted Sister stuff. Like, there are, to me, lead singers that sort of, through the power of their singing, elevate what's happening and make it heavier. Yeah. And I think Twisted Sister, I mean, D. Snyder, 1000%, you know, any song you listen to, that feels, comes across. But I think Blackie kind of sneaks up on you where maybe you didn't think that about Wasp, and then you give it a couple spins, and you really start to listen to it, and you realize, yeah, absolutely, he is elevating everything they're doing with his voice. Well, like I said on the episode, I was genuinely, like, impressively surprised by how good a singer he is, stroke, was. Um, Because, yeah, you know, having only heard a few singles, I didn't really, I don't know, it just didn't strike me like that. But listening to that whole album, I was like, oh, actually, this guy's a really fucking good singer. Yep. Uh, Michael said, this will, for me, always be a classic. I was expelled from school, age 10, in 1985 for having this cover on the back of my denim jacket. (laughs) Wow. Right? Uh, Christopher said, I freaking love this album, and set the record straight, WASP stands for We're All Side Players. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Dave said, it's funny that horror movies came up organically in this episode because I was thinking the best way to describe this album was as one of those straight-to-VHS movies you'd see in the horror section of the video store and would automatically dismiss based on cover. See, that's where Dave and I are exactly the opposite. Right, you wouldn't dismiss them, yeah. <laughs> I I cannot tell you how many movies that I picked up on cover alone. Uh, he said, or you'd know you'd want to watch ironically. And then when you finally watch it, you realize it's actually made really well and enjoyable. I was surprised at how fun of a listen this album was. Thanks for choosing it. Also, I realized something about this show that made me enjoy it even more. Essentially, Anthony and Brian are the heavy metal equivalent equivalent of horror hosts. Like the great Joe Bob Briggs, they put something on our radar that mainstream culture has dismissed and give us a history, perspective, and a fun analysis. So thanks for that. I love that compliment. Yep, I think that's a really complimentary thing to say. Thank you. I, uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily have said it myself, but uh, yeah, I like it. Uh, Wayne said, first time I heard this album was when I was in my mid-teens and thought it was great. Listening to it now does give me a sense of nostalgia, and I guess some of the tracks still stand up today. I want to be somebody. But songs like Animal and Torture Never Stops are now lyrically a bit silly. I think Chris Holmes was a very underrated guitarist due to the sniffy attitude toward the band at the time, um, and then later when he did the pool interview. I did go and see Wasp for the first time a few months back in KK Steel Mill in Wolverhampton, and Blackie's voice is still pretty decent. They only managed to play a 45-minute set, though. Yeah. Um, I, I still said, think Tor- Torture Never Stops is still like, you know, that's a song that's still going around in my head. Many, many, oh, many, many weeks dude. later, it's, uh, you know, that is a good riff. That's the song that you 
put on a playlist like for for i don't know if other people do this but like when i'm starting a new writing project or something like that especially if it's like a horror theme thing i make a playlist to go along with that and that's really kind of one of the only times i make a playlist anymore because i'm i'm a full album guy but wasp is definitely one of those and that song in particular that i think uh goes on the playlist for sure um matthew said wasp are one of those bands that i like and yet somehow i've only got a few albums I started with The Headless Children, then Crimson Idol, and most recently Babylon. They're all very good albums to my ears, but I've never previously listened to this or The Last Command, and I have no idea why. Uh, I said, I think my takeaway from the episode is that I'm probably not going to add that album to my collection, but it has reminded me how much I love The Headless Children, a more ambitious album that mostly succeeds. Uh, For anyone checking it out, stop after Rebel in the FDG, which is where the album, as released, ends. So yeah, I think a lot of wasp fans who were happy to come back and celebrate this one but also a lot of people who either weren't that familiar with wasp or weren't familiar with their earlier albums because they jumped on either at the headless children or the crimson idol or something yeah. like that so um, well and a fair few people like me who just heard those initial singles and then never listened to anything again because we kind of thought oh you know they're the the cheesy silly sex horror band right yes kind of feel like you, you got enough after that first right, pass yeah. and we're like yeah no i know what those guys are about yeah. and turns out we were wrong <laughs> well not entirely wrong but uh you know certainly higher quality than i think those if you'd only heard those singles you know uh than you'd have assumed certainly than i assumed and i don't know if i mentioned this during the episode i think i, I might have but there's a lot of great videos on youtube now of blackie doing interviews during the current 40th anniversary tour where you really see him just kind of hanging out with the fans and having very open and just like super relaxed conversations. And it really seems to me like he's enjoying that. Yeah, you did mention that. Immensely. He's very candid in a lot of those Yeah, and just immensely enjoying like going through and and making sure that people have a chance to ask questions and just kind of taking every question and, and, and rolling with it and really kind of thinking back through the years and answering very thoughtfully and things like that and it's super cool to see so if you didn't get a chance to see them and i didn't on this current 40th anniversary tour there's some great um vip sort of interview things where people are all hanging out talking to him and he seems pretty cool i i I don't know if that's different from back in the day but at this point he seems like he's a pretty chill guy and awesome to talk to Mm, very cool uh yeah and as always we'll remind people if you want to join in the conversation on facebook you can go to facebook.com slash group slash thrash it out find us there uh you know just apply to join the group uh we'll we approve everyone you know we we basically give everyone the benefit of the doubt if you then turn turns out you're a dick well then we'll kick you out but <laughs> but we'll let everybody <laughs> we let everybody in to start with and you know see how they are um you can also of course join the uh patrons become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash thrash it out uh if you want to help support the show directly uh but yeah do check out the facebook group because it's a it's a great community and as brian mentioned earlier even when there isn't an episode to talk about there is always something happening in that group there's always a conversation going people are always posting links to new music new videos news about new releases by your favorite bands all that sort of thing it's uh, you know it's a really great community yeah or even sometimes like oh this reference came up in this episode here's the video from that yeah. or here's the you know just a lot of great sort of sharing and just uh, a great vibe to the community overall so it really is. come join us <laughs> all right so let's talk about blind guardian uh 
Let's give you a few facts first. They were formed in 1984, so they go back a long way uh, originally. That is when they were called Lucifer's Heritage. Uh, they were formed in Krefeld in West Germany, uh, which is practically on the French border. It's not far from Dusseldorf. Uh, funnily enough, I, when I was looking this up and doing some research, Ralph Hutter of Kraftwerk uh, was born in, the, in Krefeld as well. I mean, that is a hell of a musical claim to fame. One of the founders of Kraftwerk. Uh, yeah, it, born in that town. Crazy. Um, this band, the vocals on this album, in any case, are uh, Hansi Kirsch, uh, who also plays bass on this album. Um, he started out as a bassist and vocalist. Lead guitar is Andre Olbrich. Rhythm guitar is Marcus Siepen. And drums is Tomen Stauch. And that is the classic lineup, if you like. They were that lineup was together for eighteen years, apparently, until Tomen, the drummer, left in two thousand five. Uh, was replaced by a guy called Frederick Emk, who was a fan of the band, apparently. So sort of, you know, a bit of a Jason Newstead style situation. Uh, and he's still with them. Uh, he's still playing with them. Uh, as I say, they were originally called Lucifer's Heritage. Uh, they changed their name when Sipen joined um, and they signed with, uh, which label was it? One of the labels, I can't remember now. Uh, they signed with the first, you know, label that put out their albums anyway. Um, and it was largely apparently to, av it was to avoid problems in the U S where, you know, you can imagine that a band called with that name probably isn't going to go down too well. Um, but also because they kept being racked alongside black metal albums. I did read that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're like, we that's not us. <laughs> we don't want that. Um, so, uh, yeah. So they called themselves, changed their name, called themselves blind guardian instead. Uh, after this album, I mentioned that Hansi Kirsch, was vocalist and bassist but after this album he stopped playing bass he's now just a vocalist and they've had session bassists instead um uh because he apparently felt that he just wasn't good enough to keep going you know for the sort of complexity that they wanted to do because they they're one of those bands that seems to have become increasingly complex and progressive with every single album um well wasn't that one of the reasons that uh tolman left the band i think yes. i read that somewhere is that he felt like the direction they were going in into like more progressive stuff was just not well, too, what he was looking to do too progressive i mean and i mean yeah. here, here's an example of how <laughs> of the sort of band that they are a few years ago they released an entirely orchestral album now orchestral albums by metal bands these days are not all that uncommon but the difference is this was not an album where they played existing songs with an orchestra this was a new album of entirely orchestral music and Hansi Kirsch singing. Like, none of the other band members play on the album. It's just, they're all new songs, but played with an orchestra. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of... That's wild. It's nuts, right? Just Now, did Andre write those songs because those two yes. are the primary songwriters right so that's right yeah andre albrecht the lead guitarist and hansi kirsch the vocalist are the main songwriters um i couldn't i, I kept finding references to them being the quote-unquote primary songwriters but i couldn't also actually find any other songs that were written by anybody else so i'm not entirely sure what that means um but the fact that they have had you know there are another of these bands that have had a really really consistent lineup for so long for so many years with only that since uh you know since they became blind guardian only the drummer changing um seats as it were is pretty amazing for a band that's been going this long you know there's as we mentioned this before there's not that many bands that remain so stable for so long um but 
that seems to be the other thing I have found. And I'm saying all this because I didn't know a lot about Blind Guardian. So I had to do a lot of research for this episode because I'd heard of them. I maybe had heard, I almost certainly had heard some tracks, but couldn't have necessarily told you about them. You know, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what they were. But just because of when they were big and the circles I was moving in, I've almost certainly heard some of their music before. I just, like I say, I wouldn't have been able to tell you about it. Um, But I knew that they were a pioneer in power metal, in German power metal specifically, and very, very influential, like highly influential on the whole power metal scene. And obviously, because they're still going, you know, continue to be influential. But this particular album, in fact, this album and the two either side of it, so before this, they did an album called Somewhere Far Beyond. Then they did Imaginations from the Other Side. And then the next album was called Nightfall in Middle-Earth. Uh, and Nightfall in Middle-Earth is literally a concept album about the Silmarillion. I mean, <laughs> for God's sake, yeah. you know. Um, they are, that's regarded as their sort of trilogy of classic albums, if you like. Um, and all three of those albums are... are you know, cited as being extremely influential. So I thought it would be interesting to choose this particular one partly because having given them all a listen, it was the one that I thought just sounded best. I think I, you know, generally preferred it to the other two uh, on, you know, just after one or two listens. But also because it this album appears to be a very transitional album, and I think those are always interesting. So this is the album where they really were starting to move away from speed metal roots, which obviously bands like Halloween also started out as very much speed metal bands. Um, but it was before... They went fully progressive and did things like making a concept album about the Silmarillion. So, like I say, I thought it would be an interesting uh, album to talk about because it's in that transitional period where they're clearly starting to find their own sound and figuring out if this is what we want to be over the long term, but hadn't quite got there yet. And this was the first one they worked with Fleming Rasmussen on, right? That's the other thing, yeah. This and Nightfall in Middle-Earth were produced by Fleming Rasmussen, for heaven's sake, which is kind of so, nuts. There's a documentary that, because they reissued this a couple of years ago. I think it was like a, uh, an more, anniversary. More than a couple. It was like, oh, well, maybe they've reissued it again. I know there was a reissue in 2007. Maybe there was yeah, another this one was more, more this was even more recent than that, or maybe it was just, a, I think it was Nuclear Blast that did a sort of uh, revisiting oh, okay. documentary where it, the whole thing is in two parts. You can find it on YouTube. It's about, I want to say, like 40 minutes long altogether. And it's with Hansi and Andre and Marcus. And they bring in a couple other people during the course of the, of the interview. But it, seeing the interview with these guys and just them talking about this album, they they had a lot of good nuggets of stories of the creating of this album and sort of where they were at as a band and things like that. And they talked about how when they got to this album, they knew that they wanted to have, they wanted to work with somebody new. They had sort of become like discontent with the previous producer. And so they went on like a, a tour of different studios and they went to, to, uh, London and then they but then they met with Fleming and they said they pretty much knew as soon as they met with him because he was like a super chill guy and they had a great conversation with him that they wanted to work with him and even though they went and visited some other places and things like that they knew that it was going to be him that they wanted to work with but they also talked about how once they got in the studio he was uh much more detail oriented than like they had been used to mm-hmm. 
and he worked them hard to get what they needed to get for this album and it was it was like taking things up to a whole nother level for them and it's it was really cool to hear them talk about the other thing that struck me in just seeing the interview with these three is they all seem super chill right and they seem to be good friends i don't to your point i i think you pretty much described like my history with this band which is that like knew the name i'm sure i've heard songs of theirs over the years couldn't think of one album that i had listened to front to back i think i checked out one of their newer albums like over the past couple of years but really had no history with this band and so everything was kind of brand new to me and what struck me in watching this documentary was like oh they seem to be pretty well adjusted like dudes at this point in their lives and they seem to generally get along and they just the way they were talking in the interview like one of them would forget a detail and the other one would would kind of helpfully jump in but there was no like nobody was trying to hog the there mic was, yeah nobody was trying to like be the storyteller for the band or anything like that like it just seemed it just seemed like a really kind of easygoing vibe that they had and as they were reliving the memories of this like they were laughing and they were oh yeah that's right i forgot about that they talked about how they you know loaded up a truck with all their gear in it and 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 booze they loaded it like half full of booze and then half full of (laughs) their gear to go because they knew that um where they were recording uh at fleming's place that the liquor was going to be more expensive so they basically like (laughs) smuggled in their uh alcohol and stuff like that but they they talked about all that stuff they they so i'll just give you a couple more nuggets from this particular documentary they talked about how the process was kind of slow to begin with and it was one of the first times that they were actually like throwing out ideas because they weren't good enough for what they wanted to do but they talked about where they what they would try to do with albums is like get to a point where they could record a demo of four songs because when they did that, they felt like they had a good enough vibe for the album that right, they, know they would what the know album was going to be. They would know whether or not they had something, and they knew when they got four songs together. And I, I thought I wrote down the songs that they. Oh yeah, so the demo of four songs that they put together for this were "Imaginations from the Other Side," "I'm Alive," um, "Past and Future Secret," and then the Requiem song. Um, oh, those so were the all four. practically the first four songs on the on the album then. Yeah, so those four were the demo of the four songs, and they were like, once we had that, we knew that uh, that, that was going to be something special, you know, the album overall. They also talked about the fact that they had to stop recording for like three, or they lost three months of like studio and recording time because Andre started having problems with his uh, with his sort of fret hand where he was getting numbness in his last two fingers. And he took a break, and it didn't get better. And so he went to see a doctor, and the doctor basically said the the nerve that goes all the way down to like your elbow was basically like hanging on by a thread. And if it had, you know, if it had fully snapped, he would have completely lost the ability to play guitar. Oh shit! And so he had to get like surgery immediately. And so within a day or two, he ended up getting surgery. And they had to take time off. And that was, you know, he talked about how that was kind of depressing at the time. And and it kind of, you know, everybody was kind of down during that. But he had to take those months off in order to heal and be able to play guitar again. But yeah, it sounds like it it was pretty serious. And it could have been, like, career-ending Right. um, at that particular time. Which could have ended the band. Absolutely. And so 
that was pretty interesting. Uh, they they re- told another story where they were the drummer uh, Tomas or, or Toman was it? To, to, well, to, uh, Thomas is his real name. Everybody calls him Toman apparently as a nickname to combine Thomas with Omen. Go figure. Okay. Um, I also learned about the whole thing, how they call themselves the Bards or the fan base calls yeah. them the Bards and stuff like that, which I thought was pretty interesting too. But they said like they were recording a song um, and I think it's Mordred's song where uh Maybe it was, or it was a different one. But there's a song where, oh no, it's the morning song, uh, which Born is, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, so that song, the drummer, was recording. And apparently there was a local gang who was nearby that was getting sick of the noise coming from the drummers playing all day. Because he was playing like six, seven hours a day yeah. and just like hammering on these things. And at one point, someone kicked in the door to the studio. And actually came in while he was recording the drums. And he assumed that it was somebody on staff. And so this person basically came into the studio to intimidate him and to stop playing his drums. And he assumed it was just somebody that was working there. So he never stopped playing. (laughs) And he just kept smiling and playing away. And they were laughing as they were telling the story. And they said that that ended up being like the best take of the drums for that song. (laughs) So if you listen to just the drum track on the song, they said that the kicking of the door in still lives on the recording <laughs> of the drums for that song. Superb. Crazy. And then they also said there was another song, um, which was, it might have been Mordred's song as well, where there was a problem with the tape that they had recorded on. And actually, like a hole got burned in the like the master tape. Oh wow! Of the recording that they had done, and the only thing that they had recorded on like additional machines was the background vocals. So they had extra copy of those of like the chorus um, style vocals, and it just so happened that the part of the song that got destroyed was a part that was just the background chorus, and so they were able to rely on the backups that they had to fill in the gap on that particular song. But had it been during any other part of the song, they would have had to completely re-record everything oh, man. because they would have lost that song completely. And so, anyways, all of which is to say, you should go check out that documentary on YouTube. They seem super cool. They seem to be uh, to just have a really good vibe all together, and they tell some really good stories of that time recording and being in the studio and stuff like that. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say about them being having such a stable lineup for so long yeah they do seem to be a very drama free band like i didn't really find and maybe maybe you know big fans of the band know differently but i certainly didn't find any you know references to huge blow-ups or people walking out or that you know any kind of any member of the band having a reputation as being a firebrand or anything like that they do just seem very very chill drama free guys which is you know makes a nice change <laughs> Yeah, um, absolutely. Unlike Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, totally, uh, which is like total drama island. Yeah, who are a bi- were a big influence on the band. Uh, yeah, that's why I bring them up. Um, Kai Hansen, one of the Halloween, you know, founders, I even guested on the first, I think, three 
Blind Guardian albums, all the albums before this one, basically, Kai Hansen guested in some capacity, either playing guitar or vocals, or I think both on at least one of them, uh, on their previous albums. Like That's how much of an influence Halloween were on this band. And you can see it. There are a couple of tracks, and you know we'll pick them out uh, when we get to the track by track. There are a couple of tracks on this where you can absolutely see, or hear, I should say, the Halloween influence. But it's not strong enough like the the influence isn't so much that you couldn't separate them like oh absolutely you, know, you can hear the influence but there is no question at any point this band does not sound like they're trying to be like halloween correct you know unlike yep. say the storm which album we did where they are cl- quite clearly in several tracks trying to be iron maiden you know and fair enough if you're going to try and be anyone why not iron maiden you know i'm not knocking it necessarily but that's you know, you can hear that on that album. Whereas on this album, there's no track you can point to and say, oh, they're clearly trying to be Halloween there. But you can hear the influence, which I think is interesting. What is it about Germany and power metal? That's what I want to know. Like, why is this particular, and especially the love of, like, you know, fantasy and mythology lyrics and stuff? Well, dude, I mean, and like, this should be my favourite genre of metal. Right, because it's all fantasy and sci-fi lyrics and things like that. It's everything that I love. I'm a Dungeons and Dragons kid. I am a, that, this is my bread and butter. You know, this sort of dark fantasy, um, you know, ancient legends. Folklore and mythology, yeah, yeah. Dream worlds, other dimensions, like, it's all, you're checking all the boxes for me. And I guess the, that was one takeaway for me of this band in general is like, I need to listen to more of this band overall and definitely more of their previous albums because all of these things are like completely in my wheelhouse. And to me, what, what, one of the things that I struggle with with a lot of power metal is that a lot of times the, there are elements of it that kind of overpower the guitars, whether it's the the sort of operatic stuff or it's this the you know the the keyboards or it's whatever. Like it, a lot of times it just doesn't hit as heavy for me as kind of I need it to be for it to really work. Whereas and sometimes it's like too interested with speed and technicality and not um like I I have never really gotten into Dragon Force, for example. Um just not a band that I that that I click with for whatever reason. But no, I, here, but I know why. It's for the same reason I haven't. I don't think, which is that they there really is that focus on technicality over. I think, uh, you know, songwriting. Um, you know, and that is. I mean, that's by no means are they the only band who fall prey to that sort of thing. And you know, that's a particular bugbear of mine with a lot of bands. But yeah, that, that's that, that's one of the reasons why I'm probably not as big a power metal guy as. Yeah, yeah, like you, as some people might expect, just because too many bands focus on, yeah, you know, hey, I can play a million notes a minute uh, in 10 different time signatures. Isn't that amazing? And it's like, well, yes, it is amazing, but I want to hear a good song. Right. And I want I want there to be contrast. I want there to be, right. you know, yeah. I want you to slow it down. I want you to pump the brakes. I want you to switch it up. I want you to make certain elements heavier. And I want to feel those guitars in the mix always. Like that to me is like a, a golden rule. It's like as soon as the guitars fade towards the background, you've lost me. Well, here's a, like, just, here's a thing. So 
I gather, and I haven't actually checked them out because I wanted to focus on this one album. I will uh, after we've we've done with this, but I I gather that some of their later albums actually do kind of fall prey to that a little bit. Not to the technicality yep. thing, but to kind of bury in the guitars. And, you know, Queen became, uh, you know, in- increasingly large influence on them uh, as they went through their career, apparently, to the point where they even called one of their albums A Night at the Opera, <laughs> which is really like, holy shit, you know, that's take some balls um and yeah there are some future albums where the guitars are a bit buried and stuff but and some people i mean i don't think anybody would say that about this album necessarily but as you get more and more complex and more progressive obviously it becomes more and more difficult to reproduce stuff live and so what i find interesting is that they actually don't try their live performances from what i've seen and from what i've read about them are much more stripped back and they just you know they don't use loads of backing tracks and tapes and stuff and they just do what they can with the what five six people who are on stage um and there is ah so this is the version you were talking about of course there's there was a 25th anniversary version of this album that's what it was that'll be the one you're talking about yeah well that version includes a live performance of this entire album like just them playing the whole album straight through from, I, I think, 2006, something like that. Um, and I have watched, because the whole thing's on YouTube, uh, I have watched a few tracks from that performance. And honestly, I might buy that version just to get, just to own the that live, live version because they have, they've just got that bit of extra punch because they're stripped back because they're not using, you know, banks and banks of dat and, uh, well, it wouldn't even be dat these days, would it? You know, just like digital backing tracks and stuff. It's got that little bit of extra punch to it, that little bit of extra energy compared to some of the studio versions, a bit like, you know, the best like motorhead were really good at that. You know, the yeah. albums were great, but it live was where they really, really, you know, brought it. Uh, and from what I've seen of that performance, at least that one performance of this band doing this album, kind of similar thing. And so actually for me, just because that's my taste, yeah, I, I actually kind of prefer a few of the live versions of that because they're stripped back and because they're not trying to reproduce the entire multi-layered operatic uh, album on stage. Which I think is a smart choice. And and you mentioned that anniversary um, re-release, I think, and I could be wrong because I know there's been multiple versions of this album that have been released. I think it's that version that has a song by the name of Systems Failing that is on as like a bonus track. And during the that sort of documentary interview that they talked about, they said that Systems Failing was originally going to be a song on the album, but they ran out of time in the recording studio, partially because of the injury injury right. that Andre had. And so Bright Eyes ended up being the song on the album instead. And so that one gets added back in as a bonus track somewhere along the way. And they also recorded a couple of cover songs as well. And I just remember, I think it was Hansi that was saying that um, Fleming was not interested in all at all in doing the cover song stuff (laughs) like he just was thought that was a complete waste of time and um but they did it i guess for b-sides and and things like that so didn't rasmussen work on the garage days stuff with metallica though did he i'm not sure i genuinely don't know if he did or not maybe even so you know by that point metallica were already huge so maybe he just did it under duress (laughs) right yeah (laughs) 
all right, let's talk about the album then. So 1995, as I said at the start, n- only nine songs and 49 minutes. So you know that you are in for something a bit proggy. Like just looking at the track list and the times, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think... Yeah, we're going to go some places. I don't think there's a single... There's one track under four and a half minutes. And it and it's almost four minutes long. But that's it. Every other track is at least four and a half minutes long, and many of them are over five or six minutes. So, yeah, as I say, you know you're in for something a bit proggy. Um, yeah, we're going to go some places. Um, one last thing before we dive into the individual tracks is that you talk about how influential this band was and how they're seen as sort of um, definitely one of the pioneers hmm. of the genre. When I listened to this album, I immediately thought, there is no way that this band is not a primary influence for Death Clock. There's oh. just no way. Because Marcus and Andre are Toki and Squizgar. Like, there's no, I need to know. <laughs> I need to hear from Brendan Small. And there are times in this album where, whether it's guitar layering or it's them playing, like, you know, right in line with each other or whatever, there are at least a dozen times on this album where I'm like, that is Death Clock. That is 100% Death Clock. And, but just like the subject matter, the way that they play, I need to know. I need Brendan Small to clarify, is Blind Guardian a direct influence on Death Clock? Because I say <laughs> yes. Excellent. Well, and I'll put my question out there, which I, I mentioned earlier. If anybody has any theories, what is it about Germany and power metal? Why, why does it thrive in that one country? I don't get it. You know, because it's not, there's nothing about power metal that kind of has a Germanic sound to it. It's not like, I don't know. It's just weird. I don't, don't, I'm not complaining. Like, I'm just really curious as to what is it about Germany? Is it just an accident because some of the first power metal bands were German? Or is there something in the culture there that, that makes bands gravitate towards it? I don't know. Anyway, let us talk about the individual tracks then. So let us open with track one, obviously the title track, Imaginations from the Other Side. I think i slacked to you <clears throat> the day after yes you did <laughs> you had chosen this album because i gave it my first listen 
And I think my message was something along the lines of, that's a bold choice to start the album with the longest songs (laughs) on the album. (laughs) So for me, this song at first listen was a barrier to entry. I was like, wow, okay, we're, we're buckling in right out of the gate for a seven minute long song. But I will say, having listened to this album a number of times now, that it definitely grew on me over time. And now I do much more appreciate it as the bookend that it is between this one and the last song in the album. And so, but it took a, it took a few listens for the song to grow on me. Um, but the reason it did grow on me is because it basically has everything within this one song that you're going to hear on the rest of the album you've got your you know you've got your little interludes you've got the background chorus vocals that are absolutely amazing you've got hansi doing clean singing raspy singing you've got some acrobatic guitar work you've got speedy heavy thrashy stuff it's basically the kitchen sink in this one song. Yeah, that's exactly my notes say exactly that as well. That it, it is. You know, I mean, you're right. It is a bit of a barrier just because of the length of it. And I, I had the same experience. Where I was like, wow, okay. Uh, but it doesn't. And once you've listened to it a few times as well, actually, the time goes pretty quickly. It doesn't feel like a massively long song once you have listened to it a few times and kind of got the rhythm of it in your head. But you're right. It contains everything that is on the album. Lots of timing and riff changes, those layered vocals, huge epic chorus, which most of the songs on this album have got. They write really fucking great choruses, really big epic choruses. And yeah, that's just, you know, we talk about opening songs, setting the stall, setting out the stall for what this album is going to be. And this track absolutely does that. If you can get through this track, if you can learn to love this track, then you will be in for the rest of the album, no question, because everything you're going to hear on the album is right here in this opener. Um, I agree with that. I think that's actually a really great way of putting it, is that this uh, finding your way into this song is the key to the whole album yeah, it's, it, it and, is a key to the album it unlocks the rest of the album i think yeah yep. yeah yeah uh, absolutely couldn't agree more there's also a strong like uh trans-siberian orchestra vibe for me in oh yeah yeah in a lot of what they do just the the kind of the storytelling the you know the the trying to like paint a picture of a world and just but, but and again like the drama of the actual music itself i think all of that really works together and and it sounds like this song and this album is something that really has become a big part of the mythology of the band because i want to say there's a song about there's a album is it through the red mirror or something like that that one of their yeah, later it's albums supposed to be a sequel to this essentially it's like a sequel to this album and it has to do with like this other world that is being spoken of in this first song and like what has happened to it in the intervening years since this character has not been a part of that world, like what has, what has befallen that world sort of in the meantime. And so um, all of that stuff, again, this is why I feel like this genre should be my favorite genre. Like all of that (laughs) stuff just makes me want to dive deeper into the story and, and what the narrative is and stuff like that. Cause it feels like it's this whole kind of like dream world where fictional characters exists and things like that. And this person like visiting that world, but then coming back to reality. Well, and there's, so we should be clear, this is not a concept album, um, but, but many of the songs on it deal with 
mythology, legends, fantasy uh, stories, as we've said. But also there are more than a few, including this one, which also have this kind of metaphorical story of the loss of innocence and sort of, you yes. know, how you lose when you, when you lose the ability to express your imagination and to access those yep. stories from a kind of wondrous point of view that you lose something of yourself and you lose something of your humanity, which is, I think, you know, a good and very quite universal feeling. Uh, but I think it's expressed very well in this song and in a few others as well. It's, uh, I, I saw somebody mention that and again, I'm not that familiar with their other work, so I'm just going off what other people say. But I saw somebody mention that the lyrics in this album, compared to their previous albums anyway, were a little bit darker and a little bit more, uh, rather than just sort of telling fantasy stories, they were more about putting them in the context of the human experience and talking about things like sadness and loneliness and the loss of innocence and stuff. But also with that reference to, hey, but also things can be great if we, you know, can learn to access that part of ourselves again. Um, and I think that comes across, you know, I, I think that really does. I do too. I mean, come across in this album and, mm-hmm. I, and I applaud it. In the lyrics, like, I hope there's a way back with my talisman. So I look into myself into the days when I was just a child, come follow me to Wonderland and see the tale that never ends. Right. You know, that just that whole idea of like, when you are a kid, it's much easier to imagine and escape into other worlds and things like that which i mean there's a whole other you know (laughs) there's a whole other discussion to be had about like those of us who still love video games and love fantasy worlds and things like that and just the ability to sort of escape and how it does get harder as you get older yeah to escape from the real world even though in a lot of ways you need that more when you are older but you it's harder to do it, right? It's harder to think about, like, for a lot of people, how, like, they, you know, they stop reading books, you know, the way that they did when they were a kid. They don't have time for games anymore. They don't watch the same kind of stuff. Any, they don't, they don't have those same escapes anymore from, um, you know, sort of the day to day. And so, yeah, I think they definitely hit on some themes here that are very relevant and very universal. And I think even though it's not a concept album, like there are concepts that they revisit throughout the album so that you could string together a story with a few of these songs. I think this one and the, in the uh, last one have some um, elements there too, which then are picked up in later albums. Well, and also this is a good point, a good time to mention uh, one of the tracks on the album, bright eyes, which we'll come to later uh, is allegedly about or a reference to the never-ending story um but there are themes in that which also relate to this track and to the last track and and, you know those concepts we were just talking about so the never-ending story most people know it from the film version the film version is faithful in some ways it's it's based on a german book called die unendliche gesichter uh which uh, and it, the story in that is much more expansive and much longer than what's dealt with in the film. Um, you know, the film's not bad necessarily, but it, it does butcher a few things in order to get to an ending when it does. It's really only the first half of the book. Um, and it's a very, that was an enormously successful book at the time, and especially in Germany. Uh, so it's no surprise, really. It was published in 1979, so not that long before this album was recorded. So it's not really a surprise that it should be an influence on somebody like uh, Hansi, who is clearly, you know, a very well-read man in terms of sort of fantasy literature and stuff. So, th- and that's the reason I mention it is because the story in there is kind of related to 
those concepts. Uh, and Absolutely. So I think that's kind of a direct, a very direct influence on several of the songs on this album. As I say, there's one in particular later in the album where it's explicitly an influence, but I think it's a more, you know, an influence more generally across uh, the themes, the lyrical themes of this album. Agreed. Um, the, uh, the other things I wanted to say about this was, I mean, I said that this track kind of contains everything you'll find in the album. Absolutely true. But on the downside, that means that it also features a few things that do jar me a little <laughs> about this album. Um, Kirsch's vocal rhythm in a lot of places on this album is just plain weird. And I've watched enough interviews with him now to know that his English is very, very good. Like, you know, very good. Um, as a, a lot of Germans do speak very good English, it's true. Um, so I'm not sure why his rhythms are so odd, uh, but they, there's a few places where, I don't know, it's just kind of, they're so odd that it throws me out of the song a little bit. Also, outside of the chorus, like I said, they write great big epic choruses, but outside of the chorus, there's so much complexity and progness <laughs> that sometimes there isn't enough repetition to kind of fully grasp oh, okay. a riff. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not enough yeah. for you to actually kind of fully grab hold of it and sing along until you know you've heard it like half a dozen times. When you've heard it half a dozen times, sure, by then you don't need that repetition. You're kind of, you know, you know what's coming next. But it does, again, like you said, it's a barrier. It kind of makes the album in places yeah. quite difficult to get into, apart from the choruses. It does mean that on first few listens, the choruses are really all that you come away remembering because there isn't enough repetition in the other stuff for it to sink into your head. For sure. I, I mean, and that ties into a lot of what we talk about on the show in general, which is just like the repeated listens thing and the, yeah. and the, the, the time commitment that, especially now, but even back then, you know, for people to give something enough time to have it really resonate with them, right? I mean, that's always you're always up against that. It's not just the the money that somebody invests to to buy the album, but it's how much time they're going to spend with it to to really, you know, get into it. But yeah, I agree, and I think when you make the first song of the album an entire album in and of itself, that is a that's a tall order. It is, yeah. Um, one, the only other thing musically I'll say about this is that we were talking about Halloween and the middle eight of this track is, sounds very Halloween to me. Um, there's something about the rhythm and the chord changes there that just, yeah, you know, really puts me in mind of uh, early Halloween stuff. Not so much the solo, but that's, yep. <laughs> to be honest, that's mostly just because neither uh, Kai Hansen nor Michael Vikath were ever that good. <laughs> We're all we're ever as good at this as this at solos. They they're good. They're great players, but you know this guy is clearly on a different level to them. Um, but yeah, there's something about the structure of that middle eight that I again that's one of the areas where I was like, oh, I hear Halloween. You know, the influence is very clear. But it's a good track. Yeah, it's a good opening track that, as we say, really sets out the stall for the rest of the album. And it is it's unashamedly epic. That's the other thing. I mean, yes, 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 it's a barrier. Yes, it means that you kind of, you have to work a little bit to get into it. But they're clearly, I think they must be aware of that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's not an accident. Um, and I think it's admirable that they're willing to do that and say, look, if you're not into this, fair enough. But if you are, you know, give us a try and you'll be in for the rest of the album. Well, and uh, yes, because like it, to me, it shows a sense of pride in right. like what they've built and being able to stand behind that and not necessarily 
you know, cutting that song down to four and a half minutes to, to fit someone else's expectations. Right. And I think the difference between this seven minute song and other songs from other bands that might be seven minutes long is that it's not just repetition. Some bands don't know when to stop doing the same thing over and over again. And the songs overstay their welcome. And here you get so many different elements that it feels like you didn't get enough of some of them, even though the song is seven minutes minutes and 20 seconds long. (laughs) Like, Oh, that one part, I wish we would have spent a little more time there. And so, yeah, I definitely think like they're not, just playing something out and dragging it out. They're just trying to fit a ridiculous amount of stuff into one song. Yeah. Shame about the fade though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always a shame about the fade. That's that could be a thrashed out t-shirt. Shame about the fade though. <laughs> All right, let's move on to track two. I'm alive. One of my favorite songs on the album. It, do you know, considering that we talked about Halloween and considering that the band openly says that Halloween, you know, were an influence on them, it is kind of bold to then make a song with the same name as one of Halloween's most famous and most loved tracks. Like that, again, that takes balls. <laughs> but it, Yes, but so different. Oh, from, totally, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is proper speed um, metal. This is it, this is proper speed is metal. Loud, this is a thrash song. Yeah. Loud, fast, thrashy, like yeah, you know, proper blast beats and everything. Well, not, maybe not blast beats, but certainly double chime snares. Uh, yeah, it's uh, y- yeah. This is a fast, heavy track. A real sort of um, you know difference to the first to the first track as well. You know, much as the first track has some fast sections in it generally it's a fairly sort of mid-tempo track whereas this is absolutely full speed ahead yeah this one punches you in the mouth and then it and then it comes in with that little acoustic uh you know section there where you the kind of electric guitar is sort of ringing out over the acoustic playing which i think is really cool but that opening is just ferocious and yeah what a what a just punch to the mouth right there and the way that some of the vocals are delivered in this song just is great. Like, I love the way he says, I'm alive. And then he says, my friend, like right after that, it's such a great delivery of that line. And also where the background chorus is saying like built up on lies, just the way that some of these, um, 
the lead vocals and the background vocals are delivered on this. It just gives it so much emotional weight and so much energy that it it just helps propel this song, you know, forward. In incredible guitar work on this song as well. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. Yeah, the chorus is good, uh, but for me, it is that pre-chorus. The system failed, built up on lies. Oh, so that good. whole section is like the the vocal melody, the chord change, the weird minor chord change in it, and the guitar line in that pre-chorus is just great. I love it. Agreed. It's uh, this song is awesome, top to bottom. Uh, yeah, it is absolutely just as you said. It propels the whole song, kind of propels towards the end. It's not. I actually just checked and I thought, oh, is this the shortest song? No, it's not. This is still five and a half minutes long. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, this is still a beefy song. And but I think for you know, if if especially during those first few listens, if the first song was a lot for you to get through. I think just the aggression that the second song comes out with, it like settles you right in to like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right, we're we're good. It here. reassures you that you are listening to a metal album. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we're gonna be fine here. Like this song is just great top to bottom. Yeah. Which is probably actually a, a good thing to reassure listeners of because let's go on to track three, a past and future secret. Right, the toss a coin to your Witcher song. That is the... I mean, if this is not the song that you hear in the background when your characters stop at the tavern in between adventures, like, I don't know what is. Um, which is fine. I mean, it again, but I would say of the first three songs, like, you got a super long first song, the second song is like settles you back down into that thrash groove. You're like, okay, things are cool here. And then we're doing like a sea shanty for the third song. And it's like, okay, my only complaint against the song, because I actually think it's a good song. And the more that you listen to the album, the more sort of catchy this song becomes. And you just accept it as part of the album. At least that's how it sort of worked out for me. But after the first two songs, this one is a bit of a momentum killer as the third song on the album. It just seemed odd to me. I know we only have nine songs to work with her, oh. but it just seemed odd to me that song three, we're taking it way down. Okay, so first of all, it's not a sea shanty, it's a faux madrigal. And I am a sucker for a madrigal. Uh, so I really, really like this song. I think it's a really good breather after track two, because track two is so fast and frenetic that I think having something like this, again, because especially when there's only nine tracks to work with, I think it's just in the right place because it's a really good breather. And it gives us a chance to hear Kirsch's clean singing voice, which we haven't heard an awful lot of uh, up until 
this point. I kind of do kind of wish that he used it a bit more, to be honest. I don't mind his uh, his harsh voice, but his clean voice is actually really good. And I do kind of wish we heard it a bit more. The percussion on this track is really great, which kind of shows Stouk's versatility. Uh, because, you know, this isn't, this isn't the sort of song where you do regular drumming. You need medieval sounding percussion. And I think he does that really well. Um, Agreed. And as for the sort of subject, I mean, this is about the Arthurian legend. Um, and we've said they set out their stall in the very first track. There's loads of references to fantasy literature in that. They even, oh, I forgot to mention, they even mentioned Michael Moorcock's Corum books yes, in, the, in the first track, which in the first I track, was yeah. not expecting that. When I first yep. saw, heard that, I was like, wait, did I, what, Corum? Really? Wow. That's how I knew we had the kitchen sink yeah. in there. I'm like, oh, damn, okay, <laughs> right, we're just running through the list here. I, I was waiting for Raceland's name to come up <laughs> right. in that conversation. <laughs> um, Funnily enough, I saw an interview, actually, where they did uh they did a fan poll where they wrote a song about something they asked fans to basically name you know a sort of a book or a, a property or something that they could write a song about it was competition of some kind uh, and dragonlance won and oh, it doesn't surprise yeah, me at all and kirsch apparently hadn't read dragonlance up until that point but has since read some of them and said yeah yeah they're not bad actually and they did do a song i think I'm not sure if it was Raistlin, but it was a song about the Dragonlance Chronicles anyway. So, yeah. New book drops in August, yeah. just yeah. saying, if you're a Dragonlance fan. Um, but yeah, um, so doing a track like this about Arthurian legend, and very blatantly about Arthurian legend, and it's not even the only track on the album about Arthurian no, legend, not. isn't but entirely But let's just surprising. talk about then... Go on. It's track three. Like... Do you think we need a breather after two songs? I mean, I don't... But, but like, one of them I, is the I, longest I, song kind of on the th- album. It's true, <laughs> which also you could argue is not the best placement of a song that long. So what if we did... What if this was the opening song? What if we flipped no, songs no, one no, and three? No, no, no. You know, we start off in the tavern, because we haven't started our adventure yet, Anthony. So we're starting <laughs> off in the tavern, meeting with our party, right? We all get together. We're going to go off on an adventure. And then we kick into the more epic stuff. No, but, but it just to me, it just feels like we put we put the brakes on after song two. And again, as I said, like the more I listen to it, like the song, like it in the overall sort of concept of the album. But I just I didn't feel like I needed a break at song but, three. But it may only be two tracks, but it's thirteen minutes. We're thirteen minutes into the album. I think that's okay to have a break at that point. Right. You know, especially after the previous five and a half minutes were, as we've said, you know, kind of breakneck speed. Um, so, yeah, I really like this one. I also, I, My- th- there's, uh, musically, there's one thing I really like, which is the suspended note at the end, which is teased earlier, just before the middle eight. That's a very, very niche, nerdy thing to notice, but it's a nice little touch. And here's something that will blow your mind. There were two singles off this album, and this was one of them. That does blow my mind. Um, I would like the after credits soundbite to this episode to be the absolute disgust in your voice when you said, first of all, it's not a sea shanty, it's a faux madrigal. (laughs) Which honestly is one of my favorite things you've ever said ever on this podcast. So just the absolute disgust in your voice when you you said that, I would like that to be the end uh, thing. That's just my one request. We'll put that on a t-shirt as well. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, actually, dude, that would be, I mean, you could front and back that, right? Um, That would be so good. Uh, All right, let's move on. Track four, the script for my Requiem. Requiem. 
This is the theme song for a Super Castlevania 4 level on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, oh, without yeah, a doubt. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> I mean, I just, just that, that's, you could tell the sound chip was in, the new, the upgraded sound chip in that, in that SNES, um, really taking it to another level. Yeah, awesome. This is another song to me that felt very Death Clock uh, influential. Um, because obviously it's a long time before them, but I like the sort of triumphant vibe in parts of this song. Mm. Um, the background vocals again, amazing. Like uh, what I didn't see, I'm sure they're in the liner notes of the album is like, who are these background singers? I think it's, who is I, this? I think it's a combination of Kirsch doing, uh, you know, layered doing, doing double sure, tracking yep. and, uh, Seepen, the rhythm guitarist. Cause he does the backing vocals live. Dude they're good oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they're really freaking good um and the their use of them throughout the album is really just powerful yeah they know um, when to bring the choir in oh my god yeah it's it's amazing like on every song it's great yeah i mean yeah we we get after that breather we're back into something with a lot more speed and energy here um yep. it's funny actually i saw an interview it wasn't related to this track specifically, but because this track is, you know, has a lot of speed and energy to it, it just reminded me. I saw an interview with Kirsch and Ulbrich where Kirsch joked that listening back to this album was a bit painful in some ways because they couldn't play all that well. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, <laughs> like, I, that, that's ridiculous. Get, get out yeah. of here. Ulbrich <laughs> like, uh, did actually uh, like pick him up on that and said, no. Actually, we could play pretty well, and and Kirsch just kind of it was self-effacing and said, "Well, maybe you could." <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that because in that documentary they talk about how Fleming basically, uh, I think it was Andre that was saying like he played a take of this particular song. I don't know if it was this song or not, but he like finished the whole take of the song, and Rasmussen looks at him and says, oh, "Okay, so you're done warming up now." <laughs> and he they just kind of talked about, but I remember Hansi saying that. Uh, yeah, his as far as like bass playing and stuff, like it was, it was tough to not work with uh, Fleming, but that he demanded to meet the standards. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that that was that was a lot of work that they put in on this yeah. album. So uh, ironic that they think like that they still didn't hit some yeah. sort of <laughs> imaginary <laughs> threshold because it sounds incredible. Yeah, um, yeah another huge. Amazing, huge, epic chorus on this one. I love the chorus on this one and the the choral like returning of the miracles. That line is just oh my god. I mean, like using a choir will make anything feel sort of big and pompous and epic, you know. But but you do need more than that. Like you you need that melody as well to be good. And and I think they absolutely nail it here. This is a such a great chorus. I wouldn't say this is necessarily one of my favourite tracks on the album. I do like it. Um, but this particular chorus is certainly one of my favourites. I would agree with that. And I think it is, you know, you can argue about the placement of song three, but this song is a perfect follow-up for that song. Yeah. Oh, I- It just really immediately sort of ramps you back up. Yeah, and speaking of uh, Seepin, actually, the rhythm guitarist, I, I made a note on this one. Like, this is a good track, I think, to sort of... Uh, point out his importance because yes, Ulbrich gets the glamour of the lead guitar and he is a great lead guitarist, no question. But you need the solid bed of rhythm guitar underneath it, you know, to make a, a really good track uh, and for, to support the solo. And I think he does a great job throughout the whole album. And this tr- this song is a particularly good 
example, I think, of him doing that. But like I say, I think he does a really great job throughout the whole album. And he seems really, again, like watching interviews with him, he seems really just kind of content. And because he did do a bit of, uh, apparently on their earlier albums, they kind of traded lead a little bit. But then as time went on, he just settled into, you know, exclusively doing rhythm guitar. And he seems very, very happy doing it. And you watch him play live and he's clearly having the time of his life. Uh, so I think that's, you know, sort of rhythm guitarists are often the unsung heroes of metal bands because, yeah, they, they're they not the ones who stick the feet on the monitors and get all the, the spotlight on them and stuff. But I always think it's worth noticing how important they are to certain tracks absolutely you cannot have acrobatics without having great rhythm right like you can't like it it, the fact that they can do some of the things they do on this album is because of how good the rhythm is yeah and actually this song has one of my favorite solos on the album too i mean you know you know know that i'm not a, a huge solo guy but some of the solos on this album are very good and very you know musical and melodic and well thought out and this is this one is one of my favorites for sure Yeah, this song's great. So I was going to say end of side one, which this was, I looked it up, this was the end of side one on the vinyl version, but by 1995, honestly, vinyl was already pretty much dead. Um, So uh, the only vinyl version that was released, I think, at the time was a very limited edition version. Um, So we're already, you know, we've moved on, unlike the 80s albums, we've already moved on into the CD native era, as it were. Yep. So track five uh, is the other Arthurian legend song on this album, and that is Mordred's song. Yeah, I like how this song sort of starts off with that acoustic opening with kind of the lead guitar over it, and then it's his scream that kind of kicks it into a full mm. groove, and it's got it. This song has a really good groove to it. Do you think? See, I think if so. I have a problem with this album overall, it's the or not a problem, but well, you know, sort of for me personally, one of the things that I wish it had is a bit more groove. Like it, what it lacks in terms of influence from Halloween, if you like. Uh, in fact, in fact, it's this song. I'm just looking at my notes, and it's at this song where I made a note about this. This track really shows the big influence of classical on their music. Uh, which isn't something that I hear them talk about a lot, but I think as somebody who listens to a lot of classical myself, I think it's very, very clear that there is a, and there is on a lot of prog, to be perfectly honest with you, a lot of prog metal. Uh, there's a massive influence of classical music, uh, composers on 
the music of this band, um, which is great and fine. But as a result, you're like one thing classical music does not have is swing. <laughs> classical music does not rock and roll, you know? Uh, and I feel like that's the one thing lacking on this album, which you do get with bands like Halloween and Gamma Ray. They, they swing, they, they know how to rock and roll. And I don't get that off this album at all. Um, and I, I kind of wish there was more of it. Yeah, this song to me also has, uh, this is another one where I was like, man, the Death Clock vibes are really present to me. Um, I was thinking of like the Doomstar Requiem uh, Death Clock stuff as I listened to the song too. But but again, like thematically too, like the... the um, uh, the lyrics of like, I plunged into misery. I'll turn off the light and murder the dawn, turn off the light and murder the dawn. Like just that whole idea of like waking up from a nightmare, right? Turn off the light and murder the dawn or, is, or is that know, what it um, is? Like, I love that those lines, but I have no idea what they mean. <laughs> well, I kept going back to the idea of like being cut off from this world that you escaped into. Right. So that, um, but all, I also know that there's other, you know, Arthurian themes that are running through this as well. But to me, that whole thing of like severing the connection sort of thing is what is one of the things that I sort of took away from it. But it also could be like um, breaking away from your fate, right? Like breaking away from whatever your sort of destiny is sort of thing. So I think there's multiple ways to interpret that. True, true, yeah. It's uh, and yeah, this is a good song. It's good, you know, good chorus. Like I say, I, I don't know what turn off the light, murder the dawn means, but I do like it. It's a really good couplet. Um, it's it's another song where it really lives in the chorus, I think. Like, the verses are not that special. Uh, I mean, there's a key change at one point for no particularly good reason, <laughs> which is very odd. Um, but yeah, but the chorus itself is good. And uh, yeah, you know, it's a good track. It's not one of the best on the album, in my opinion, but it's fine. I don't think there are any bad tracks on this album at all, to be honest. No, I don't either. Let's move on to track six then. Born in a Morning Hall. That's morning with a U.
Yeah, I mean, this one ties into like modern sensibilities as well, right? When you're looking at the lyrics, it's like, you know, it's frightening, exciting to sit at home and watch the burning fields get hypnotized by the TV snake, obey and work hard and feel no anger. Just that whole like being locked in to the hamster wheel of modern reality, right? And never having an escape and just kind of, um, feeling like you can't change or impact anything sort of thing, feeling helpless, that kind of stuff. Like I, I definitely, um, which I think is the first time in the album that we kind of dip into like more modern explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. Explicitly modern lyrics, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I love the, the TV hypnosis bits where the music gets all kind of dreamy and his voice gets soft and kind of reminds me of the bit with the snake in jungle book uh you know yeah well and like a line like just sympathy for the higher class yeah. <laughs> there's no chance in changing changing in cha- like well, wow. there's no chance in changing things yeah oh right no changing. yeah, yeah. it's yeah as i say I, I, I love those little bits um it's this is another energetic song as well after another mid-tempo uh because mordred's song is quite you know sort of mid-tempo stuff yeah. and then this one brings up the energy again that's what i say i think the balance on this album between you know fast slow fast slow up and down and so on i I think it's actually a pretty good balance i think they got it just about right um i think overall they did too and it's like in for song lengths too right you look at the first song being uh the three longest songs i think are one four and nine right right so just as far as like how they kind of space those out it's like not you're not you get a breather in between all yeah. of them. I was going to say, there's a bit of a, I think there's a bit of a Metallica feel to some of the riffs here as well. Oh, interesting. Like in the, the downward progression in the pre-chorus definitely feels kind of Master of puppets to me. Um, yeah, you know, just a little bit of influence there, which I, I think is, you know, it stands out to me anyway. Another huge chorus, obviously. Um, but it doesn't take, unlike the previous song, I think the the rest of the song matches up to the chorus. Like, you know, sort of yeah. the chorus doesn't uh, take energy away from the rest of the track, which is good. Um, this is one of the shorter tracks as well, even though it's still just over five minutes. <laughs> but it is one of the shorter tracks on the album. Um, I feel like the concept of like shorter and longer uh, as you go further in the album almost gets lost. Yeah, totally, yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of lose track of the time aspe- of the Especially songs. when you get tracks like the one we just talked about actually Mordred's song the intro of that almost feels like the outro of the previous track and so you yeah, yeah. you kind of start to they all not that they start to blur into one another that's not true but you're right the you know where does how long is this track where does one start and the other uh, end and the other begin it is not so important um but yeah good track this let's say really good chorus so uh, and then after this comes track seven bright eyes Oh, 
This one had kind of a Queensryche vibe to oh. me in the beginning, and almost it feels like ocean waves in the back. There's like a like a whooshing um, kind of sound effect in the back, but the the vocals of like uh, just another fool kind of getting repeated mm-hmm. over and over again. Like I really really like that effect, and the riff is awesome. Yes. It's funny, actually, because I thought that that opening sounded a bit like Marillion. Oh, That was okay. the comparison I made rather you know, I'm more likely to say that rather than Queensryche, so. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it's an unusual intro for this album as well. That's, it's, the, it's the only track on this album that really has an intro like that, uh, that feels much more like a sort of traditional prog song. Um, this was the other single by the way. And I think you can see why, because I think this is probably the most uh, conventional song on the album in terms of its structure. Um, not necessarily in terms of melody, but certainly in terms of its song structure. It's like it's a solid yeah, mid-tempo I totally rocker. See that. It's got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know. Uh, so yeah, I can kind of see why this was released as a single. I'm still baffled by a past and future secret being... <laughs> the other single even though i like yeah. that track like really that's gonna be a single okay um the other influence which you know you may or may not agree uh on this track that sounded to me that i thought was there anyway is the way they use the lead guitar line throughout this as its own melody actually reminded me of paradise lost so i mean you know take your drink if you're doing the drinking game but get, at the time 1995 paradise lost were at their height that was pretty much their, you know, they were riding high and they were especially big in Germany. They've always been quite popular in Germany. In 1995, they were huge in Germany. So I do wonder if that might have been a direct influence on this track because the way that that guitar line, as I say, is used as a melody throughout the song just put yeah. me in mind of uh, of Greg McIntosh. Well, much like you just said with Queensryche, that that one is a little bit out of my wheels wheelhouse as a reference. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be a pull that I <laughs> come up with there. For me, Queensryche was the one where I was like, oh, okay, I'm feeling a little Queensryche vibe here. I like the solo in this one as well. Uh, for the same reason, there's a kind of there's a nice interplay I think between the lead and the rhythm in the solo on this. Track. Well, and when when they return to that like catchy little riff at like almost four minutes, is are they saying watching you? watching or are they repeating just another fool again oh because it yeah, almost I feels like know. they're saying watching you watching you watching yeah, you sort I, of thing i think you're right yes uh, and i i tried to but f- it's not, it didn't show up in the lyrics uh, yeah. when i looked up the lyrics of what That's it was, what I, was just gonna say. I tried to find it in the lyrics and didn't see it but yes you're right i i think they are saying watching you there uh which obviously brings you know another sort of angle to the whole song um right especially as this is this is another song that is even though it makes references to uh you know fancy stuff like merlin and uh you know neverland and things like that it is nevertheless very very has a modern sensibility and is about again you know sort of loneliness and fear and uh yeah just kind of uh real life right um which is a, yeah is interesting for an album that uh, contains so much just outright mythology <laughs> you know songs talking about uh, fantasy and uh, legends and things like that um yeah i feel like the further along the album goes the more those things start to get mixed together yeah. as opposed to you know being a little more separate to begin yeah, with totally well and i think the next track is very very illustrative of that actually so let's move on to track eight another holy war 
Yeah, I mean, this one feels ferocious from start to finish to me. Um, from a lyrical standpoint, talking about like b- being the one true God, being crucified. Uh, you know, will I fall to rise again? Um, can't stop what's going on. Like, like there's this whole like messianistic theme. Yeah, that runs through this whole song. Well, I think it's I, I think it's about the Crusades. I think that's the kind of you know that that's the overall. Uh, setting if you like but yeah within that they dip into a lot of things such as yeah the crucifixion and uh you know blasphemy and religious war and you know i it feels to me anyway like there are hints and metaphors in this about modern war in the middle east as well because let's not forget this was only a few years after the first gulf war when they would have been writing this oh yeah that's a good point so yeah i i did as I said, there's a few things in here which I think you can quite easily interpret as, uh, you know, comments on, yeah, you know, our continued uh, war against, which obviously is still fucking going on, uh, war against the Middle East. Um, but you're right that it's, I mean, this is proper speed metal again. This is, you know, or certainly getting close to it, you know, very much back up with the energy after the previous track, uh, which was another sort of mid-tempo rocker i love how the well and also like kind of born in in a morning hall there's that whole element of like helplessness yes right of like not being able to change your circumstances being you know being sort of uh destined to whatever this path is yeah absolutely absolutely um i was gonna say i love how the drums in the chorus in this use that kind of martial marching rhythm like it's an obvious thing to do given the subject matter, but it, it, I think it really works. And you know, this is not a band that does the obvious thing most of the time, <laughs> so I think they're allowed to get away with it. You know, once or twice. Well, and uh, you know, we've we've mentioned it a couple times, but I think Tolman's drums throughout the entire album are incredible. Yeah. You know, we talked about how important the rhythm guitar is, but I think just like it sh- can't be said enough that every component of this band is just like extremely well done uh you can sort of pick out as you're listening to the album any one instrument and just kind of focus on that and be super impressed with what they're doing on any given song so yeah i think the the drums overall on the album are fantastic yeah agreed um this one has another great chorus um i i wonder if this whole song was built around this chorus around, actually because yeah. that the the an, another crucifixion for another holy war couplet that is easily the strongest part of this yep. song and of the concept and so yeah I, I did wonder if they kind of came up with that first <laughs> and then built the rest of the song around it um oh also yeah th- this is so this is one of the tracks that i watched live in that performance uh and this it's a good demo actually of what we were talking about with the backing vocals because there's a lot of i mean they do the overlapping vocal lines a lot throughout the whole album it's clearly you know a consistent part of their style but they do it a lot on the chorus here and as as we said earlier that sort of thing is difficult to pull off live but they really do they pull it off really well and that is because of the quality of seepan's backing vocals uh he handles all of the sort of, you know, lines in the chorus here, which Kirsch can't because you can't sing two lines at once, obviously. Um, right. So, yeah, it, watching this track live in particular is a good demonstration of how they take something layered like that and translate it live. And uh, as I say, they do it really well. Let's move on then to the final track. 
the end of the album, and indeed the end of the story, because it's called Track 9 and the Story Ends. Which might be the best song on the album. <laughs> I had the same note. I feel like, first of all, as a finisher, tremendous choice. Just a perfect, perfect finisher. At six minutes, like it doesn't overstay its welcome. Musically, it's amazing. The background vocals are so freaking good that they gave me chills. Um, and there's an epicness to it. That for me, and I think this brings me back to the first song in the album, it took me a few listens of the first song to feel the epicness of it, like to get what they were truly going for, the the sort of sweeping nature of it. Whereas with this song, the very first time that I heard it, I felt that epicness. I just think it it just captures it perfectly. Uh -uh. The guitar work on this song, that sort of like twin guitar vibe is awesome. Like just top to bottom, a pretty much a perfect closer. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it is an absolutely perfect closing track for this album. And yeah, may well actually be the best track on the album. It is completely epic. It is, yeah, just fits perfectly here at the end. I mean, it doesn't start like that at all. Uh, the start almost feels like a continuation of another holy war of the previous track but then as soon as you get to that choir you're like oh wow okay yeah. huge huge <laughs> it's just yeah that whole sequence of what can i do on this road to nowhere at the edge of time and the story ends that whole sequence is yep. just fucking brilliant and then you get the the punch of the drums guitars and the choir all coming in after that line for the chorus how much more epic do you want you know I mean, it, it, to me, like it's a it's a masterclass in creating that epic vibe, yeah. right? And it doesn't have to be a thirteen minute song, and it doesn't have to lack any punch, and it doesn't have like you can have all of those things, and when they work so well together, like it's just like lightning in a bottle, and that's what. And you know the the thing about a great closer is it makes you want to flip the record over and start all over again, and th this without a shadow of a doubt. Does totally that. does yeah yeah all it also and th this is where i'll get on my old man horse a little bit do it, it also i think really shows the power and the importance of melody because yes. you can imagine a version of this track which is 
you know, in, shall we say, a slightly more modern style where it lacks the melody uh, and, you know, the vocal melody I'm talking about um, and is just sort of delivered, you know, in the, the harsh bellow um, yep. vocals that a lot of bands use these days. And I just don't think it would work anywhere near as well. Uh, that you know, Or even like pulls out the acoustic bit you know, just goes for straight. Well, maybe, but I think even if you just left the music as it was, but changed the vocals to something that sounds more like what we hear from a lot of metal bands these days, uh, I think it would lose something. I think it wouldn't feel as epic because you need that, especially with the choral bits, you know, you need that melody sometimes to lift you up. Uh, And this song absolutely does that. This is, I mean, you talked about triumphal feel in some of the earlier tracks, and I think this track absolutely has it. This is, you know, this absolutely feels like a victory march almost, doesn't it? You know, like you just want to leap to your yeah. feet and kind of well, raise your fists in the air. And I think for those of us that champion like 80s, right? Like the 80s hair metal and stuff like it, so much of that goes back to like the melody and just wanting that. And so to have that used so well in a harsher, you know, overall composition, you see, you can see how the best of both worlds can come together. Yeah. Yeah. You know how they can really complement one in, one another in and sort of seamlessly work together while also providing this contrast that just creates a whole other dynamic for the song. And so I lo- what I love about this band is like they fully embrace that. It's ne- it never feels like it's a tug of war between two t- at least at this, with this album, right? I don't know enough about their, you know, musical catalog to to know that, but it it feels like those things are never at odds. They're they fully embrace one another. Totally, yeah, yeah. They they are. I mean, much like we said about the opening track, they are clearly not ashamed of what sort of band they are, uh, and yeah. you know, perfectly willing to just stand there and go, "Hey, this is us. This is what we do. Take it or leave it." Um, well, and you have to like. Go, I mean, even going back to like our wasp discussion, like whatever you're doing, you got to go gotta for commit. it. Yeah. You got to commit. And I think when you don't commit is when the fans see right through it. And it just doesn't resonate in the same way because that sense of commitment, the fans can feel that it's not there. And so, yeah, embrace it. Be what you are, be who you are. And the people that it's going to find will see that genuineness and it will, they'll have a powerful connection to it. Totally. Well, and my last note connects to that actually before i do that just because <laughs> some wags are probably or almost certainly going to mention it yes there are plenty of bands i like who actually don't do an awful lot of melody fear factory being a good example you know <laughs> like so i'm sure somebody will try and throw that in my face but even then there is limited melody you know or white zombie or something like there is limited melody there it's not just completely monotone um and obviously here you know or a band like halloween there's a lot even more melody but i think some melody just is important especially in vocals because yeah i don't know well and one last thing i throw on the end of that is that what i think where i struggle with a lot of power metal is sometimes bands unfortunately the melody sands off the edges of the music right, right. and that's where they lose me and what this band does extremely well on this album is they don't ever sand the edges off right. of the harder elements they find they, that balance those things exist together and they don't take away from one another and i just i i appreciate that yeah it's a good balance yeah so what i was going to say was the one thing on this track that i'm not 100 percent sure about is the very very end uh 
Well, yeah, the, where the, I'm not a king, I'm just a bard. How can I trust if there's good or bad? At least I found a friend, right. yeah. It, I feel like this song might have, and I'm saying might very specifically, it might have worked better if they had ended on him singing and the story ends one last time with a big, with a yep. big crash. But at the same time, I can see why they did it this way, and it's not bad. It doesn't ruin the song or anything, far from it. Um, and I can see why they did it to kind of bring things down with almost like with a denouement, like the epilogue to a story, which, and that, that was the realisation I had as I was sort of thinking about this, was like, it's almost like the epilogue to a, to a story, which kind of makes sense given the sort of song, given their sensibilities, you know, in the sort of songs that they write. So that's yeah. why I'm not sure about it. Like, I don't, maybe it would have been a more traditional way to end, but maybe the way that it does end is actually very appropriate for this band. Yeah, I don't think there's anything I would change about this song. I feel like it is just textbook. Here's how you close an album. Yeah. And that choir really is great. <laughs> really Amazing. Is. Like I said, it, it is the, the, I got chills. Yeah, that's how to do it. Um, all right, so overall, impressions. I mean, I'll say that, like, the standard three listens, I don't think is enough to get into this I album. Agree. I agree. I think this is one where you definitely need at least half a dozen listens before it will all start to fully click. Uh, and I've listened to it, you know, even more times than that, obviously, over the last few weeks. Um, it's kind of, I think because of that lack of rock and roll that I mentioned earlier, it's not quite, it's like perpetually hovering on the edge of becoming a favorite. So yeah. I, I don't know if this will kind of stay in my regular road rotation. I do like it. I really like it, but I'm not sure yet if I love it or if actually there's a different a, album of theirs that would appeal to me more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I'm it, uh, the thing that I'm left with, and I agree with you. I think three listens, three listens might get you through the first song, and and start to unlock the album for you. But then you got to really settle into the rest of the album and appreciate what they're sort of doing there. And so I think the three albums is bare minimum. But I agree with you. It takes or three listens rather. I agree. It takes. It'll take more than that to really appreciate it. But like great albums, this is one of those that every time you listen to it, you appreciate something more about it. And I really like that. Um, I definitely, I'm excited to dig into the rest of their discography, even if, as the story goes, some of their later stuff got uh, too progressive for some. I know that there's a lot of music from them that I have not dug into yet that I'm going to like. And I really, really like that. And the other thing about this band is like seeing the interviews. I watched a live, someone posted a live video on the Facebook group. I watched that one. That was a fantastic performance of theirs. But one of the rare bands where everything I learned about them during the process of prepping for the episode made me like them more. Yes. Yes. Whereas for a lot of bands, it's like you inevitably hit the red flags where you're like, oh, that's too bad. Or <laughs> mm, that, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, with this one, it's like they just seem like a group of friends that embraced this type of music that they wanted to create and the type of content that they wanted to explore. Um, and it feels good. You know, yeah. like it, it feels good to learn more about them and it feels good to 
to just um, listen to this album and it makes me want to dig into more of their catalog and there's enough of it that there's a lot of stuff that I haven't ever listened to that I can't wait to dive into. So yeah, I mean, uh, as far as this album goes, I mean, musically, compositionally, just fabulous. Um, The vocals, amazing, but everybody's doing amazing things, but in service of the song. And and fully committed to what they're trying to do here, and even the guitar acrobatics from like Andre is not, um, doesn't ever overshadow what the song is. And I think that when you have someone that is that talented on lead guitar, it is very easy for that to distract from yeah, totally. what you're trying to do, or for them to like take always take over a song. And what you get the vibe of with this song is a lot of sharing with this music where there, they, there's a lot of, um, you know, give and take throughout the songs. And I, I think it, it all just works together really well. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So there's just one last thing to do, and that is find out what the homework is going to be Let's do from it. the Encore poll. Uh, before we do, as always, I will once again remind people that uh, if you want to Give us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, Spotify even. Uh, That is great because it helps. You know, the more reviews we get, the more sort of ratings we get, the more likely we are to be recommended to other people. So, you know, that is genuinely a way to help support the show because you're helping push it over the line to where it gets recommended to others. Uh, but you can also support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. And if you do so, you'll be able to take part in things like the encore poll that we're just about to do now. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, go to thrash for links to email and Twitter. Um, and you can join the Facebook group, as we mentioned earlier at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. So let's look at this encore poll. We have, 55 entries, 55 nominations uh, from our patrons. Uh, We have a lot of joint uh, nominations, which is to say, you know, more than one person nominating the same band and in some cases even the same album. Like there are, I shit you not, there are six entries on here for Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell. (laughs) Well, I won't be disappointed. That means there's six ping pong balls in the cage right now. With heaven and hell, with on that them. number on it, that's exactly how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Uh, there's like two for Testament, two for Overkill, three for another Nightwish album, three for another Motorhead album, four for another Mastodon album, um, three for another Anthrax as well. So yeah, there's you know there's quite a, quite a bit of doubling up here. It's going to be interesting. So as I say, we have 55. Uh, I'm, I'll post the whole list actually uh, in Facebook. Uh, underneath the post for this episode, just so people can see what the list was that we got. And I am now going to go to random.org and because they, you know, uh, generate nice true random numbers. Get a number between 1 and 55. Here we go. Click. And the number is 42. Oh, boy. 42 is Paradise Lost's album One Second. Okay, I know nothing about that album, so you have to tell me if we're really excited about I'm that. I'm really excited about it. It's one of my favorite okay. PL albums, for sure. I do not know how you will react to it whatsoever, because it was the start of when they started to kind of move away from hardcore metal a bit, uh, and, you know, sort of 
go into lots of synths and um, non-metal rhythms and that sort of thing. So yeah, that will be that was nominated by Kenneth White, by the way. Uh, so thank you, Kenneth. Um, Kenneth is an active participant in he is. the community, and I'm happy that he got uh, his pick. To Absolutely, come yeah, me too. Um, yeah, so thank you everyone for nominating. Thank you, Kenneth, for nominating that one in particular. And uh, yeah, that will be our next episode. We will talk about Paradise Lost album One Second. Uh, we'll see you then. Till then, keep thrashing. Take care, everyone. Talk about some blind guardian. All right, so I'm kicking it off today because you are because it's my choice. Yes, the keeper of the seven keys for this episode. <laughs> um, that will not be the last Halloween. Uh, uh, no, it definitely won't. <laughs> <laughs>